0: Chapter Seventeen of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Morant. Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Translated by F. P. Walter. Chapter Seventeen An Underwater Forest. We had finally arrived on the outskirts of this forest, surely one of the finest in Captain Nemo's immense domains. He regarded it as his own, and had laid the same claim to it that, in the first days of the world, the first men had to their forests on land. Besides, who else could dispute his ownership of this underwater property? What other bolder pioneer would come, axe in hand, to clear away its dark underbrush? This forest was made up of big tree-like plants, and when we entered beneath their huge arches, my eyes were instantly struck by the unique arrangement of their branches an arrangement that I had never before encountered. None of the weeds carpeting the seafloor, none of the branches bristling from the shrubbery, crept or leaned or stretched on a horizontal plane. They all rose right up toward the surface of the ocean. Every filament or ribbon, no matter how thin, stood ramrod straight. Fucus plants and creepers were growing in stiff perpendicular lines, governed by the density of the element that generated them. After I parted them with my hands these otherwise motionless plants would shoot right back to their original positions. It was the regime of verticality. I soon grew accustomed to this bizarre arrangement, likewise to the comparative darkness surrounding us. The seafloor in this forest was strewn with sharp chunks of stone that were hard to avoid. Here the range of underwater flora seemed pretty comprehensive to me, as well as more abundant than it might have been in the arctic or tropical zones where such exhibits are less common but for a few minutes i kept accidentally confusing the two kingdoms mistaking zoophytes for water plants animals for vegetables and who hasn't made the same blunder flora and fauna are so closely associated in the underwater world i observed that all these exhibits from the vegetable kingdom were attached to the seafloor by only the most makeshift methods they had no roots and didn't care which solid object secured them sand shells husks or pebbles they didn't ask their hosts for sustenance just a point of purchase. These plants are entirely self-propagating, and the principle of their existence lies in the water that sustains and nourishes them. In place of leaves most of them sprouted blades of unpredictable shape, which were confined to a narrow gamut of colors consisting only of pink, crimson, green, olive, tan, and brown. There I saw again, but not yet pressed and dried like the Nautilus' specimens, some peacock's tails spread open like fans to stir up a cooling breeze, scarlet rose-tangle, sea-tangle stretching out their young and edible shoots, twisting strings of kelp from the genus Nereocystis that bloomed to a height of fifteen meters, bouquets of mermaids' cups whose stems grew wider at the top, and a number of other open-sea plants, all without flowers. It's an odd anomaly in this bizarre element, as one witty naturalist puts it, the animal kingdom blossoms, and the vegetable kingdom doesn't. These various types of shrubbery were as big as trees in the temperate zones. In the damp shade between them, there were clustered actual bushes of moving flowers, hedges of zoophytes in which there grew stony coral striped with twisting furrows, yellowish sea anemone from the genus Caryophyllia, with translucent tentacles, plus anemone with grassy tufts from the genus Zoantheria, and to complete the illusion minnows flitted from branch to branch like a swarm of hummingbirds while there rose underfoot like a covey of snipe yellowfish from the genus lepisocanthus with bristling jaws and sharp scales flying gurnards and pinecone fish near 1 o'clock captain nemo gave the signal to halt speaking for myself i was glad to oblige and we stretched out beneath an arbor of winged kelp whose long thin tendrils stood up like arrows This short break was a delight, it lacked only the charm of conversation. But it was impossible to speak, impossible to reply. I simply nudged my big copper headpiece against Conseil's headpiece. I saw a happy gleam in the gallant lad's eyes, and to communicate his pleasure he jiggled around inside his carapace in the world's silliest way. After four hours of strolling I was quite astonished not to feel any intense hunger. What kept my stomach in such a good mood, I'm unable to say. But, in exchange, I experienced that irresistible desire for sleep that comes over every diver. Accordingly, my eyes soon closed behind their heavy glass windows, and I fell into an uncontrollable doze, which until then I had been able to fight off only through the movements of our walking. Captain Nemo and his muscular companion were already stretched out in this clear crystal, setting us a fine naptime example. How long I was sunk in this torpor I cannot estimate, but when I awoke it seemed as if the sun were settling toward the horizon. Captain Nemo was already up, and I had started to stretch my limbs when an unexpected apparition brought me sharply to my feet. A few paces away, a monstrous, meter-high sea spider was staring at me with beady eyes, poised to spring at me. Although my diving suit was heavy enough to protect me from this animal's bites, I couldn't keep back a shudder of horror. Just then Conseil woke up, together with the Nautilus's sailor. Captain Nemo alerted his companion to this hideous crustacean which a swing of the rifle butt quickly brought down, and I watched the monster's horrible legs writhing in dreadful convulsions. This encounter reminded me that other, more daunting animals must be lurking in these dark reaches, and my diving suit might not be adequate protection against their attacks. Such thoughts hadn't previously crossed my mind, and I was determined to keep on my guard. Meanwhile, I had assumed this rest period would be the turning point in our stroll, but I was mistaken, and instead of heading back to the Nautilus, Captain Nemo continued his daring excursion. The seafloor kept sinking, and its significantly steeper slope took us to greater depths. It must have been nearly three o'clock when we reached a narrow valley gouged with high, vertical walls, and located a hundred and fifty meters down. Thanks to the perfection of our equipment, we had thus gone ninety meters below the limit that nature had, until then, set on man's underwater excursions. I say a hundred and fifty meters, although I had no instruments for estimating this distance, but I knew that the sun's rays even in the clearest seas could reach no deeper. So at precisely this point the darkness became profound. Not a single object was visible past ten paces. Consequently, I had begun to grope my way when suddenly I saw the glow of an intense white light. Captain Nemo had just activated his electric device. His companion did likewise. Conseil and I followed suit. By turning a switch, I established contact between the induction coil and the glass spiral, and the sea, lit up by our four lanterns, was illuminated for a radius of twenty-five meters. Captain Nemo continued to plummet into the dark depths of this forest, whose shrubbery grew ever more sparse. I observed that vegetable life was disappearing more quickly than animal life. The open sea plants had already left behind the increasingly arid seafloor, where a prodigious number of animals were still swarming. zoophytes. "'articulates, mollusks, and fish. "'While we were walking, I thought the lights of our room devices "'would automatically attract some inhabitants of these dark strata. "'But if they did approach us, at least they kept at a distance regrettable "'from the hunter's standpoint. "'Several times I saw Captain Nemo stop and take aim with his rifle. "'Then, after sighting down its barrel for a few seconds, "'he would straighten up and resume his walk. "'Finally, at around four o'clock, this marvellous excursion came to an end. A wall of superb rocks stood before us, imposing in its sheer mass a pile of gigantic stone blocks, an enormous granite cliffside pitted with dark caves, but not offering a single gradient we could climb up. This was the underpinning of Crespo Island. This was land. The captain stopped suddenly. A gesture from him brought us to a halt, and however much I wanted to clear this wall, I had to stop. Here ended the domains of Captain Nemo. He had no desire to pass beyond them. Farther on lay a part of the globe he would no longer tread underfoot. Our return journey began. Captain Nemo resumed the lead in our little band, always heading forward without hesitation. I noted that we didn't follow the same path in returning to the Nautilus. This new route, very steep and hence very arduous, quickly took us close to the surface of the sea. But this return to the upper strata wasn't so sudden that decompression took place too quickly which could have led to serious organic disorders and given us those internal injuries so fatal to divers. With great promptness, the light reappeared and grew stronger, and the refraction of the sun, already low on the horizon, again ringed the edges of various objects with the entire color spectrum. At a depth of ten meters we walked amid a swarm of small fish from every species, more numerous than birds in the air, more agile too, but no aquatic game worthy of a gunshot had yet been offered to our eyes. Just then I saw the captain's weapon spring to his shoulder and track a moving object through the bushes. A shot went off, I heard a faint hissing, and an animal dropped a few paces away, literally struck by lightning. It was a magnificent sea otter from the genus Enhydra, the only exclusively marine quadruped. One and a half meters long, this otter had to be worth a good high price. Its coat, chestnut brown above and silver below, would have made one of those wonderful fur pieces so much in demand in the Russian and Chinese markets. The fineness and lustre of its pelt guaranteed that it would go for at least two thousand francs. I was full of wonderment at this unusual mammal, with its circular head adorned by short ears, its round eyes, its white whiskers like those on a cat, its webbed and clawed feet, its bushy tail. Hunted and trapped by fishermen, this valuable carnivore has become extremely rare and it takes refuge chiefly in the northernmost parts of the Pacific, where in all likelihood its species will soon be facing extinction. Captain Nemo's companion picked up the animal, loaded it on his shoulder, and we took to the trail again. For an hour, plains of sand unrolled before our steps. Often the seafloor rose to within two meters of the surface of the water. I could then see our images clearly mirrored on the underside of the waves, but reflected upside down. Above us there appeared an identical band that duplicated our every movement and gesture, in short, a perfect likeness of the quartet near which it walked, but with heads down and feet in the air. Another unusual effect. Heavy clouds passed above us, forming and fading swiftly. But after thinking it over, I realized that these so-called clouds were caused simply by the changing densities of the long ground swells and I even spotted the foaming whitecaps, that their breaking crests were proliferating over the surface of the water. Lastly, I couldn't help seeing the actual shadows of large birds passing over our heads, swiftly skimming the surface of the sea. On this occasion I witnessed one of the finest gunshots ever to thrill the marrow of a hunter. A large bird with a wide wingspan, quite clearly visible, approached and hovered over us. When it was just a few meters above the waves... Captain Nemo's companion took aim and fired. The animal dropped, electrocuted, and its descent brought it within reach of our adroit hunter, who promptly took possession of it. It was an albatross of the finest species, a wonderful specimen of these open-sea fowl. This incident did not interrupt our walk. For two hours we were sometimes led over plains of sand, sometimes over prairies of seaweed that were quite arduous to cross. In all honesty, I was dead tired by the time I spotted a hazy glow half a mile away, cutting through the darkness of the waters. It was the Nautilus's beacon. Within twenty minutes we would be on board, and there I could breathe easy again, because my tank's current air supply seemed to be quite low in oxygen, but I was reckoning without an encounter that slightly delayed our arrival. I was lagging behind some twenty paces when I saw Captain Nemo suddenly come back toward me. With his powerful hands he sent me buckling to the ground, while his companion did the same to Conseil. At first I didn't know what to make of this sudden assault, but I was reassured to observe the captain lying motionless beside me. I was stretched out on the seafloor directly beneath some bushes of algae, when I raised my head and spied two enormous masses hurtling by, throwing off phosphorescent glimmers. My blood turned cold in my veins. I saw that we were under threat from a fearsome pair of sharks. They were blue sharks, dreadful man-eaters with enormous tails, dull, glassy stares, and phosphorescent matter oozing from holes around their snouts. They were like monstrous fireflies that could thoroughly pulverize a man in their iron jaws. I don't know if Kansai was busy with their classification, but as for me, I looked at their silver bellies, their fearsome mouths bristling with teeth, from a viewpoint less than scientific, more as a victim than as a professor of natural history. Luckily these voracious animals have poor eyesight. They went by without noticing us, grazing us with their brownish fins, and miraculously we escaped a danger greater than encountering a tiger deep in the jungle. Half an hour later, guided by its electric trail, we reached the Nautilus. The outside door had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it after we re-entered the first cell. Then he pressed a button. I heard pumps operating within the ship, I felt the water lowering around me, and in a few moments the cell was completely empty. The inside door opened, and we passed into the wardrobe. There our diving suits were removed, not without difficulty, and utterly exhausted, faint from lack of food and rest. I repaired to my stateroom, full of wonder at this startling excursion on the bottom of the sea. End of chapter 17 Recording by Liz Morant LizMorant at gmail.com.